Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. We've spent a couple of weeks together in this, and uh, we started a specific uh, section here looking at uh, specifically how does the Word accomplish its work in our lives. And I want to come back to that theme here today because we really only dealt with the first half of that the last time that we were together. And so we're looking specifically here at verses 16 through 21. And I want us to continue examining this today because there's quite a bit more that we can kind of pull out of this text. You know, it was a number, several hundred years ago when the telescope was, full, was first invented by a man named uh, Galilei Galileo. And when he first turned it upon the heavens, he was astonished by what he saw. The very first time a telescope was invented and pointed up into the sky, the inventor of it nearly fell over in surprise at what he found there. It was a fall evening when he first turned it upon the moon. And up until that time in history, mankind thought the moon was as polished as a gemstone, he writes. And he was shocked to discover that it is not a smooth surface at all, actually. It's covered in craters and valleys and ridges and mountains. And and he was surprised by what he saw. He turned his, his telescope onto different planets, and he, he discovered that the star that they knew as Jupiter was actually a massive planet that had three moons of its own. And he turned it to Saturn and found that Saturn had these rings that surrounded it, and up until that time, that was all there, but no one knew it. Because with the naked eye, you could not perceive any of that. You, you, mankind didn't know. Science did not know that Saturn had rings or that Jupiter was enormous and, or that the moon had mountains and craters upon it. These were things that had been there since creation, and yet no one knew anything about them whatsoever. And the reason they didn't know it is because they didn't have the ability to see it. And if you don't have the ability to see something, it is impossible to know. Right? And that is exactly what Peter is saying here in this book to us this morning. The purpose of the Word of God is to enable you to see things about Him that would otherwise be completely imperceptible to your spiritual eye. Everyone knows that God exists, right? scriptures say that it's written upon their hearts. They can see it in creation around them. And and most of mankind chooses to suppress that knowledge. But we're all born with an innate knowledge that there is a higher power that does indeed exist. And and it's as though you're saying that God is, is like just that star out there where we can see that he's there. We know he's there, but we know absolutely nothing about him at all, without some kind of special revelation that will tell us what he's like and who he is and what he expects. We need to apply a a, a spiritual telescope to our eyes to be able to see the features of his nature. And that is essentially for us in our lives the function of the scriptures. The scriptures are for us like a telescope that enable us to see the fine contours of the nature of God, who he is and what he's like, right? That is the nature of special revelation. And for us, if you try to know God, much less obey him without being able to see clearly the person of Christ through the pages of scripture, it's, it's a lot like trying to learn about the rings of Saturn without the aid of a telescope, flatly. 
It's just simply not possible. It cannot be done. You cannot see the reality of his greatness and who he is if you do not have the ability to gain information about him. That is the importance of Scripture. You see, when the Word does its work, it enables you to not only see yourself as God sees you, but it also enables you to see God for who he actually is. And that's what we've been talking about. Spiritual growth, it's directly connected to your vision of Christ. When you know him, you begin to love him. And when you begin to love him, then you begin to obey him. The trick is getting to know him. And that is the purpose of the word of God. Let me read this passage for us this morning as we dive back into it. Peter says, starting in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we made ourselves, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have a, have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You see, we saw in this passage the last time we were looking into it together that the Scriptures are very clearly inspired. That's what this passage is telling us, that it's really men who were moved by God who put pen to paper and spoke for him in the words that they were given. And there are four essentially resulting attributes of Scripture that enables that word to do its work within us. And all four of them are here in this text. We've already looked at the first two. We've seen that Scripture is necessary, that you need to have it. Right? You must have it. It is the enabling feature that enables you to know who God is. Therefore, it is necessary to your spiritual life. You must have it. We saw that it is also authoritative. It is authoritative above and beyond any experience that any man, including the apostles themselves, have, has ever had. You see, experience can be misinterpreted. The Word of God cannot. It is necessary and it is authoritative. We saw those last time we were together. And both of those uh, attributes are the reason why the, the word is able to do its work, because it's necessary and it's authoritative. That's why the word does its work in our lives. And today, we're going to get down into the second of, the, of these four, or the third and the fourth of these four attributes, the fact that the scripture is also sufficient and it is clear. All right. We're going to find today that the word does its work in us by way of or through its sufficiency and its clarity. And that really is the point of verses 19 through 21, which is where we're going to be spending our time together this morning. Now, before we jump into both of those attributes, the sufficiency and the clarity and connect them to the scripture's work in our hearts, we have to look at one thing here. Because there's a verb that governs everything in these verses, and it's the words there, pay attention. In verse 19, look, he says right there, so we have the prophetic word made sure to which you do well to pay 
attention. All right? That's the word that really governs what we are to do with this section of Scripture. It's, it's a word that means to carefully consider something. It's a word that means to be alert for or to continually give yourself to something. And, and the range of meaning of this word really in the ancient world was pretty elastic. It can even go as far as meaning to be addicted to something or to a substance. It means to earnestly long and yearn to see something. But beyond, behind every meaning of this word is the sense of carefulness to carefully consider. In much the same way you might carefully consider the balance in your bank account, right? I mean, most of us check that on a fairly regularly basis to make sure that there's, you know, actually money in there before we write a check. And if you just keep writing checks and don't carefully consider the balance, if you don't pay attention, you're going to find yourself in a world of hurt. That's the kind of idea here behind this word to pay attention, to carefully consider to assess, to know exactly what it's there for, and to pay attention to it. And this is the main verb that Peter is going to use here for this section. He's saying, pay attention because the Scripture is sufficient for your life. Pay attention because the Scriptures are clear to direct your steps. But that's the key phrase that we need to start out with and kind of set as the foundation for what we're talking about here today. Peter's fundamental foundational expectation out of us in response to what he's going to be saying, is that we would carefully consider this, that we would pay attention to this, and that we would then sequentially order our lives on account of what we found. Okay? Because the word is necessary and authoritative, it can be trusted, and we should pay attention. We've already seen that. So, now we have to actually pay attention, because as we're about to see, it is both sufficient and clear. Okay, so we've got to get that out there on the front end, and now we can dive into it. All right, the first thing we see here is that the sufficiency of the word enables its work. Look there at verse 19. He says, pay attention. Why? Because the scriptures serve for us as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The very first thing he tells us about this sufficiency is that it is sufficient for us right now. He says it is as a lamp that is shining now in a dark place. And he's essentially saying this is the reason why you need a sufficient word of God speaking into your life. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The reason why we need the word of God that is fully sufficient in our lives today is because without it, we are absolutely, totally, and utterly lost in the midst of pitch black darkness. Without the scriptures, you are fatally lost and you have no way to know God. You have no way to know what his expectations for you are. You have no way to find your way back to him. There's no way, therefore, to realize the eternal life that is found in him. In order for all of those things to happen, he must reveal himself to you. And the way that he has done that is through the pages of his word. So the ability to see him is very important. Without the scriptures serving as the light that lights up who he is, we're lost. And that's what he says here. He says, you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark 
place. Now let's start there with that little phrase, dark place, and just kind of pull out what that means a little bit, because it doesn't just mean to be dark. It's not the kind of darkness that comes with nighttime. It's actually a darkness that is much, much, much deeper than that. In the original language there, it's a word that is pronounced oxmeros, right? It, that's the word, and it's a word that means to not just be dark, but to be dry and squalid and gloomy. It's related to the same word from which we get our word <laughs> austere, which means to be fully deprived or despondent or squalid and filthy. That's the kind of darkness he's talking about here. It's the original pit of despair, so to speak. Some of you got that. Think with me about John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, right? You've all heard of the, well, maybe not all of you have, but if you haven't heard of it, you should read it. But most of us have heard of, of John Bunyan's Slow of Despond, right? Where Pilgrim, Christian, starts off his journey, and the very first thing he walks into is this absolutely miserable swamp that he cannot get out of. It is pitch black. It is dark. He cannot get out of it. That is the idea that Peter is talking about here. It's not just to be dark, like you've turned off the lights. It's to be utterly and completely and totally miserable, stuck in a place that is squalid and filthy, desperate and wretched. That is the dark place that he's talking about here in verse 19. It's not just the darkness that comes at night. He's basically saying that without the light of Scripture, you may as well be living in an underground swamp. It's pitch black, dirty and filthy. Now, last summer, I know, Mainstream took a bit of a camping trip up to Sequoia, and a big group, I don't know, 60 or 70 of us, all went to the Crystal Cave together, right? And that was really a wonderful experience. It was a lot of fun. But you had to hike way down into this kind of gorge. And then once you get into the mouth of the cave, you hike way down into this cave until you come to the place where you actually find yourself in this massive cavern with rock formations all around. And it's very difficult to know where to go because there's openings, there's closing, there's holes, there's all sorts of places to go from that specific cavern into other caverns, right? And if you go, to, if you go there, the tour guide will take you into that big cavern, and some of you experienced this with me. And it's a cave that was discovered in the year 1918. And the story that they tell you, I tried to source this, but had no way to find out if it's made up or real. But the guy told it as if it was real, is that in 1918, there was a couple of honeymooners who decided on their honeymoon to go cave exploring. I don't know why you would do that on your honeymoon, but these two adventurers did that. And the story goes that they wander their way into this cave that is about a mile underground, or it feels like it is, and as they get down into that cave, now this is before the time of batteries and flashlights and that sort of thing, their, their lamp is somehow extinguished and put out. And there in that absolute, utter pitch blackness, these honeymooners spent over a week without food and with very little water, searching by hand the walls of this enormous cavern before they finally stumbled upon a tiny exit. The point of that story is to say that when you find yourself in a squalid, filthy place that is far, far underground and you are completely in the pitch black, that situation is utterly fatal to you unless you happen to stumble upon the exit. And that's the idea that as Peter is wanting us to get here in this text here this morning. He is saying, you must understand that the scriptures are for you a lamp 
in the midst of a very horrific darkness in which you find yourself. It's not just, oh, we have a light. Look, here's my flashlight or here's, here's the beam from the light on my iPhone. I mean, this is a, a life-saving mechanism and device that once you have it, you can very easily find your way out. But if you do not have it, you will not be finding your way out and you will almost certainly perish. That's what he's saying. This, this lamp here, the word he uses for it, is just a little tiny oil lamp that you would really hold in the palm of your hand and it, it ha- would have one little flicker coming out the end like a candle. But he says that lamp, that is enough to illumine the dark place where you spend your life and you must have it. Our world without the knowledge of God, our world without the scriptures is like being stuck in that underground filthy cavern. And if you have just the smallest flame, you'll be fine. But if you lose it, you are most assuredly dead. The word of God is that flame for us. The word here for lamp, it's just this small little flicker, but it's enough to light your way. It's enough to guide your steps. It's enough to guard your life. It is fully sufficient to teach you the knowledge of God that leads you to salvation, to cause your heart to grow in the fear and the knowledge of who He is, and therefore to produce wisdom for living and to reveal fully the person of Christ. In short, it is the means by which the Holy Spirit generates your spiritual life. The prophetic word is the entirety of Scripture given to us that points us to Christ and reveals to us His person. That's what Peter's talking about here. He says, we have the prophetic word made more sure. That's the Scriptures. And he says, you must pay attention because they are to you like a lamp that is shining in that dark place. The reason the Scriptures are sufficient is because they point us to Christ. And they reveal the nature of who he is and the salvation that he has brought to us. Jesus said about this prophetic word in John 5.39. He says, you search the prophetic words because you think that in them you have eternal life. He says, but what you're missing is that these words testify about me. That's Jesus' definition of the prophetic word. Are the scriptures that point us to the nature of who he is. Is And when we see him, we're able to find life. And that's the reason why Peter is able to say, back over earlier in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How could he say that? The only way he can say that is if we now have a knowledge of Christ. Where do we find that knowledge of Christ? We find it here as this small little lamp shining in a dark place, pointing our hearts towards the heart of Christ. And it is his heart that reveals to us the face of God himself. And that, for us, is completely sufficient for what we need in our spiritual life today. But Peter's not done talking about sufficiency here. He goes on and says, the word of God is not just sufficient for you today, it is also going to be sufficient for you tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that until, he says, the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. 
Now, there's some amazing truth here, but it's really so wrapped up in metaphor that it's, it can be a little bit hard to know exactly what he's talking about. What is the morning star and what is the day dawning? It sounds very beautiful. It sounds very picturesque. But what exactly does it mean? And that's what we have to figure out here together. Okay, Because he's saying the sufficiency of Scripture is going to last until the point comes when that day dawns and the morning star arises. So what's he talking about? Well, the key to this image, this, this metaphor, is really the morning star. And so let's start there. Okay, Back in Numbers chapter 2417, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just tell you about it. There's Balaam, right, who is essentially a pagan prophet who is commissioned by Balak, the king of a, of a pagan people, to put a curse upon God's people. And so he goes out and he tries to curse the people of God. But instead of cursing them, what comes out of his mouth instead? Blessings, right? You all know the story. But there in that blessing that he gives, there's a little phrase that says, I don't see him, I see him, he's not here yet, but coming soon is a morning star that will arise out of Jacob. And for centuries, for thousands of years from that point, all the way through the history of the Jewish people, they have looked at that prophecy from Balaam of a morning star coming, and they have said that is very clearly a messianic prophecy. The Messiah will come, and he will be to us the morning star for our people. It's very clear messianic prophecy there. Okay? So right away, from the time of Numbers, the time of Moses, all the way through up until the time of Jesus, that is interpreted to be a prophecy of the coming Messiah. This morning star is Jesus himself. And you say, well, can you verify that with some later revelation? Or is that the only place where the morning star is equated with the person of Christ himself? Well, it's not. Because here's what Jesus says about himself in Revelation 22:16. Ready? He says, I am the bright morning star. Why would he say that? Why would he use this imagery for himself and why would Balaam thousands of years previously have said that Jesus was going to be the morning star? And when Jesus is speaking to John in Revelation, why does he say, I am that bright and morning star? What, what is the implication of that? The reason why is that the morning star in their world was really Venus. We know this because it's very well attested throughout all of Old Testament history. It's the star that arises just before the dawn and announces that the sun is about to come up. When you see the morning star, you know that it will most certainly be followed immediately by the sunrise. The sun is now here. And what Peter is saying here is that when you see the person of Christ, in the pages of Scripture, you can be most assured that you are about to see the full sunrise. It is about to completely come up because once you see him, you're going to immediately be ushered into the presence of the burning, glorious sun. The sun always follows the rising of the morning star. And if you're following what I'm saying here in the imagery, I know it's a little bit complicated, but what he's saying is this, that to see Christ, the morning star, is to be assured that you are about to see God the Father, the full blazing Son, who is about to make his appearance. In Revelation 21, uh, verses 23 through 25, interprets this passage the same way. It says this, 
and the city of heaven, it has no need of the physical sun or the moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. So when we take all of that kind of background information and funnel it down into this passage, here's what it is telling us. Jesus Christ is the morning star who comes to announce the coming of the full-orbed revelation of the Father. To stand in the presence of the Father is to be wrapped up in full spiritual daylight, where there is nothing hidden, everything is visible, it is brilliant, it is bright, it is beautiful. And if Jesus is the morning star who announces the imminent presence of the sunrise, it is He who reveals to us the coming glory of the Father. And the next time that we see Him is going to be when He returns in His second coming. And that coming will announce to us the fact that everyone who fears him is about to stand face to face in heaven before God himself. And that is the dawning of the day. And Peter here says that the word of God is sufficient from today until that day. When you stand before him, the spiritual day having fully dawned, the sun of God's presence having arisen and uh, enabled you to see the greatness and the fullness of who he is. When that happens, the light is going to pierce through the present darkness with perfect brilliance and revelation. King Jesus will return to take his people and establish his eternal throne. He gathers him people, his people to himself and to their eternal home in heaven with the Father. The impact of that event is given to us in 1 John 3, 2, where we're told, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Now, for those of us who are still sitting here, and it's the middle of the night, because the second coming hasn't happened yet, which means it's all of us in this room, we sit here in the night with our little lamp in our hands, Peter is saying, this book, until the day dawns and that morning star shows itself announcing the fact that you're about to stand in the presence of God himself, seeing him face to face, this book is sufficient today and every day until that dawn comes for you. But Peter's saying, you must look forward to that day. Because the difference between your knowledge of God today, even through this book, is like the difference in wattage between a flickering candle and the blazing of the sun. When he reveals himself and you stand in his presence, your instantaneous knowledge of him, your instantaneous knowledge of your own need will be so extreme that it will be like the difference between a flickering candle and the burning orb that we know as the sun. That's the difference in wattage that exists between the knowledge of God that we have in this book and the knowledge of who he is that we will have when we actually stand before him. But Peter says, the current knowledge that you have is not only sure, but it is sufficient enough to tell you what you need to know in order to know him so that one day you can stand before him and realize his glorious greatness in its fullness. It is sufficient today and it will be sufficient tomorrow. Until that day, though, 
the Word of God is sufficient for us. It is the flickering flame that gives us just enough knowledge to know how to walk with God. But Peter is telling us here that behind that small flickering flame, empowering its ability in our life, is a blazing planet of fire that is ready to burst over the horizon. And just as assuredly as the sun will come up tomorrow, that day will dawn in your heart, and you will stand before him, and you will see him. So, what do we do with all that right now in our lives today? It's this. If the word of God is sufficient to sanctify you in the midst of this present darkness today, and if it is sufficient and will remain sufficient until the time comes when Christ's return and the day breaks upon us, then what should we do with it? Well, the application is pretty obvious. You read it, right? God gave us a book. God gave us His Word so that we might find ourselves exposed to it. You see, if you live in a land of darkness, the last thing you do is to set your lamp down and just wander off. You're not going to do that. I'm telling you. When the tour guide took us down into that cave and shut the lights off and plunged us into absolute darkness, I was nearly begging him to turn it back on. I want the lights back on. Because what happens if you can't find the switch? When you live in darkness, you want the light, right? If the Word of God is our light, you must use it. If this is the lamp that God has given to us to illumine our way, you must cling to it as if your spiritual life depended on it, because, frankly, it does. You must use it. You must live according to it. You must know it. You must read it. Because if you truly believe that the Word of God is necessary, that it's not, as he says in verse 16, just a cleverly devised tale, but if it is truly the full necessary revelation of God to you, if it's necessary, if you believe that, and if you believe that it is authoritative and it it stands in judgment over your own experience, Peter says, then you must also believe that it is sufficient for you as well. And if you believe that, then you must expose yourself to it constantly. Hold up the Word of God and use it to examine yourself and how you fall short of the expectations of who God is. When He says, you shall be holy for I am holy, those aren't just words. That is a divine standard that He is setting so high up here. And if you read in His Word what holiness is, you will find that you are so far down here. Examine your life in the context of Scripture. Don't just use it to examine yourself, though. Use it to examine the pathway of your life. If this is a sufficient word, not only for us to know who we are, it's also a sufficient word to tell us what we must now do. So, go do that. What does the Scripture say about the decisions that I'm making and the way that I'm making them and the the motivations behind why I'm making them? It's sufficient, not only for you to know yourself, but for you to know your way. And finally, use it to look for the coming of the dawn, the day when you will stand before God and see Him face to face, being perfectly conformed into His image, having now seen Him in the full radiance of His beauty and His glory. Use it to learn as much as you can today about who He is so that when you actually see Him in the full greatness of who He is, your heart will rejoice rather than be dismayed. 
That's what we do with the sufficiency of Scripture. You must use it. If you believe that it's necessary and authoritative, then you must believe that it's sufficient. And if you believe that it's sufficient, you must actually put it into practice. See, the Word, it does its work because it's necessary, it's authoritative, and it is sufficient. And Peter gives us here one more attribute of Scripture. He says, not only is it all these things, it is also clear as well. It's the doctrine of clarity. Scripture is clear for us. And the fourth thing that he shows us here in this text is that the clarity of the Word enables its work. Necessity and authority, we saw those last time. Today, it's sufficiency and clarity. All of these things work together to enable the work of God in our life, utilizing His Word. Okay? Now, this section here in verses 20 and 21 is still connected back, again, I point you, to that main verb where he says, pay attention. Pay attention because it is first sufficient and now here because it is also clear. And he really, here in verses 20 and 21, gives us two halves of an equation about the clarity of Scripture. He says in verse 20, if you can't see clearly, it's not because of the Bible, it's because of you. And in verse 21, he says, if you can see clearly, it's not because of you, it's because of the Bible. Okay? It's pretty clear. He says in verse 20, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of your own interpretation. Verse 21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke, and here's the key, from God. All right? So let's look at each half of this, this doctrine of clarity one at a time. The source of cloudy vision, I hate to say it, but it's you. Okay? It's not God or His Word, it's you. There's a, a doctrinal word here that is often used, and just for your own edification and educational sake, I'll give it to you. It's the word perspicuity. Okay, that's a word that theologians will use to talk about the fact that Scripture is inherently clear. It is not inherently confusing. It is clear. And the theological term for that, the doctrine of that, is the perspicuity of Scripture. That's a fancy way of saying that the meaning of Scripture that is necessary for salvation is so clear that someone who knows nothing, an unlearned person, can understand the Scriptures and what they need to know for salvation simply by reading them. Okay? Scripture is that clear. It is simply clear. You can be saved by just reading the Scriptures on your own without any additional explanation. Why? Because they came from God. And God Himself is by nature clear in His communication. Sure, there are hard things but they can be discovered and explained. And therefore, everything in Scripture either is clear or can be clearly explained. It is inherently, by its own nature, a clear book. Now, there's an important application for us in the midst of that. It's this. You can understand the Scriptures when you read them. You may have questions, but if you investigate, you will be able to answer them. There is not some kind of hidden mystery knowledge behind the text that you need before you can properly interpret it. You must read it, you must grasp it, and you must do it. And its clarity demands that you respond to it. So we ask ourselves the question, why is it so clear? It's because it comes from God, and He is perfect. And so when He sets out to communicate about Himself, that communication is perfectly clear. 
So, when you begin to forget that this is actually a book that came from God, and you start to try to use it as your own self-help manual, you're going to get yourself into trouble because it isn't that. You see, cloudy spiritual vision is the result of not appropriately and properly approaching the Scripture. When you read it as it was meant to be read, which is very simple and clear, you can understand it. But when you begin to foist your own interpretation upon it, you begin to cloud everything up. And that's what Peter says here. Know this, first of all, that no Scripture is a matter of anyone's own interpretation. Instead, the meaning of Scripture is what God intended for it to be, not what you want it to be. And that is a very, very important point. Okay? It is not your vision that is the source of Scripture. God's mind alone is the source, and it was His intention to reveal Himself through the person of Christ in the pages of Scripture. And that's why in verse 20, Peter uses the word, this is not about your own interpretation. That word interpretation is a word that means to unloose something or to untie something. And, and this is the only place in the New Testament where that word shows up. But if you look at other places in the ancient world where it's used, it, it means to explain a, a dream or a riddle or a vision. And Peter is saying, y- y- you simply cannot approach the Scriptures the same way that you might try to interpret someone's dream or, or someone's riddle. It's not up to you to decide what they mean. It's not like... the It's not like, uh, take the complexity of the tax code, for instance, right? That is not a clear document, okay? It's currently tax time. I understand that. And we're all going through with all of our tax accountants and trying to figure out, what does this mean? It's not written in a way that is clear. It is written in a way that is inherently complex. And therefore, it can be open to certain interpretation. You better get the right one or you're going to be in trouble. But Scripture is not like that. Scripture is not inherently complex, It is inherently clear because it comes from God. And so the key question that we must ask ourselves as we approach the Scripture is this. What did God intend for us to know? What was the authorial intent behind this text? What did the author mean when he said this? What was God trying to communicate? That's the question we must ask. Not, what do I want this text to say? Frankly, that doesn't matter. Because if you, if you approach Scripture that way, not only will you confuse it, but you will have your own interpretation, and that is not consistent with the nature of what Scripture is. This is very important, because it's so tempting to say, you know, I think, in a Bible study context, I think, or I believe, or I know, or maybe a little bit more lofty, I perceive that. No one cares, Right? That's not the point of reading your Bible. When you approach the text, it's not about what you think or what you believe or what you know. Instead, you're seeking to know the mind of God apart from your own. And His mind is clear. So figure out what He is saying, not what you want Him to be saying. What does God think? If you approach the Bible inherently asking the question, what do I, what do I want this to say? You're not only misunderstanding the purpose of Scripture, you're actually missing the point of who God is. He's not a genie that exists to serve you at your whims. It's actually the other way around. And the clarity of Scripture demands that we go after His meaning because it's His Word and not our own. You see, the source of any kind of spiritual vision that is cloudy 
is us. And here's what Peter says will make it clear if you go back to the fact that it comes from him. He says in verse 21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Clear vision in our lives about who we are and who God is, it's possible because the Scriptures plainly reveal God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, Every single part of Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for everything, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. He is the source of truth. And that's why... Peter says here, no prophecy was ever made. R.C. Sproul says that this is the most forceful use of the word never in all of Scripture. It's like he's yelling it. No, I won't do it, I promise. But no prof- there was never a prophecy made by the act of a human will. In every single case, it came not from man, because he would have messed it up. It came from God. It came directly from him as he used his Holy Spirit to move men to speak and to write what they had to write, the message that came from him. See, the Scriptures is not your vision. It's not another man's vision. The emphasis here is on the origin of it. This is the reason that you don't get to just make it say whatever you want it to say. Because men were born along essentially by the wind of the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God and were propelled and carried by Him. The source of Scripture wasn't some other person's great idea. Though written by men, it didn't come from men. And it's important for us to not miss the impact of that specific statement. Okay, What he's saying here, look there at the very end of verse 21. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. God engaged, why? So that you might know Him. So that you might know what His expectations were. And that is the incredible wonder of Scripture. On these pages, printed clearly in black and white and maybe some red, are the words of God in heaven to you. And Peter tells us they are clear. They are not to be misunderstood. You can grasp them. You can know them. And you must know them because they are inherently clear and they are from Him. See, the Word of God is pure because it is detached from you. And because it is detached from you, it is therefore qualified to speak into your life as the authoritative Word from God. If it came from you or was subject to your own interpretation, it would no longer be from God. And it would no longer be authoritative and it could not give you clarity as to what God expects. But because it comes from Him, it is clear. And it is therefore applicable in all times. And it is true. And you must listen. Such an important point to be made in our world specifically. You know, I I remember... In junior high, I think, I had a unit in literature class on poetry. And my teacher forever ruined poetry for me. (laughs) To this day, I have never gotten over it. And my social awareness is hindered and hampered by the fact that I have no appreciation for poetry. And the reason for that, I won't tell you the teacher's name because it would throw her under the bus way too much. But every poem we would read, she would ask the question, what does this mean to you? And I'm way, even in junior high, way too much of a literalist for that. 
I don't care what it means to me. What I want to know is what did this guy say when he wrote it? What, what, what did it mean to him? Because that's the only way to read anything, right? What did this mean? What did the author mean when the author wrote this? And poetry, apparently, is completely contingent upon what it communicates to you. And I just can't get over the postmodern nature of that, right? I want to know what the author meant. And that is the only way to approach Scripture. You see, you cannot approach Scripture like a good postmodern individual where you say, what does this mean to me now? It will mean whatever I think it should mean, and whatever it says to me will be the meaning of this passage. That's how I feel about it. That is not the way to read Scripture because it is clear, because it came from God, and that should cause us to look upon it a certain way It's not just another piece of poetry or literature that was produced by man and is therefore subject to interpretation. No, it is the greatest treasure that you own. We must, and here is the application of this point regarding clarity, we must hold it with the greatest of possible values because it's not connected to us or dependent upon us. It simply is. And that is why the psalmist says it stands forever. The word of God will stand when all else has faded away. Why? Because it exists outside of ourself, because it comes from God and is not wrought by our own hands. And as such, it's our greatest resource. It's our purest treasure. It is from God, and it is therefore perfectly clear for us to understand and to know and to do. It's not confusing. And that makes it of incomparable value. David says in Psalm 119, Therefore, because of this, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, fine gold. Not just any gold, but like the 20-carat kind. They are better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The Scripture is valuable to us because it has been entrusted to us by God Himself so that we can now put the telescope to our eye and see Him with great clarity. These are the attributes of the Word that enables it to do its work in our life. And we've gone through this text and we've looked at all four of them kind of in order. But just to remind ourselves as we wrap it up here today, it is the necessity of the Word that requires we depend upon it. If the Word of God is necessary, then we must depend on it. It is the Word's authority that requires that we submit ourselves to it. If it is the ultimate authority, then we must obey it. It is the word sufficiency that requires our exposure to it. If it is God's tool for our lives that is sufficient for us to live with all things in life and godliness, then we must know it and use it. And finally, it is the word's clarity that requires that we value it appropriately, knowing the source from where it came. These are the attributes of the word of God. And these are the things that enable it to do its work in your heart and in mine when we open it up. I trust that that's helpful to your understanding of the way the Word does its work in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. It is truly in every way a treasure. It is necessary. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. And it is clear. And we praise you for having given it to us. Without it, we would be lost in a very, very dark place having no knowledge of the person of Christ, having no knowledge of your nature. And yet, because we have it, we now clearly see you. And we praise you and we eagerly anticipate the day when the day will dawn upon our hearts and we will be able with unbridled eyes to see clearly, not as though we're looking dimly in a mirror, but no, instead face to face, 
May we stand before you having our knowledge of you perfected. We anticipate that and we look to it. In the meantime, we trust your word, we treasure it, and we lean upon it. In Jesus' name, amen.